The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Do you wish for a more fulfilling, erotic, and sexual life? The journey begins here. This is The Sexual Voice with your host, Jessica Ford. As a relationship psychotherapist working with individuals and couples for decades, Jessica knows how to create and support meaningful relationships. Along with her guests, Jessica expands the lens of sex therapy, connecting you with a more satisfying and healthier sexual self. Now, here is Jessica Ford. This is The Sexual Voice, and I'm Jessica Ford. Welcome to today's show. Where's the sex when things don't work? What physical difficulties get in the way of us having sex? It can be pelvic sexual pain for women and at times for men. And men, it can be an erection issue, either Not hard or not hard enough. Orgasm is too quick or too slow. When these issues get in the way of our sexual basic need, what is it like for us, our partner, and the relationship? Dr. Carolyn Pukal joins us today from Ontario and Dr. Stanley Althoff from Florida. So what is getting in the way of having sex? This occurs in men and women in a variety of ways. Women's sexual pain is usually a pelvic floor issue. Vaginismus, which is a vaginal muscular constriction, or dyspareunia, which is pain during intercourse, and vulvodynia is a vulva sensitivity to touch. Causes vary from muscular tonicity, hormonal issues, and at times, lack of arousal can be a factor. Diagnosis is a difficult process, and assessment is a key element in achieving success in treatment. Medications, pelvic floor, physical therapy, and biofeedback are some of the methods The exact number of women with vulvodynia is unknown. Researchers estimate between 10 to 20 percent of women between the ages of 18 and 20 and 64 may experience vulvar pain during their lifetime. The evidence suggests that many women either do not seek help, do not seek help at all, or their doctor is unable to provide a diagnosis and treatment. We are fortunate today to have Dr. Carolyn Pukal, who is a clinical psychologist, a professor of psychology, the director of Sexual Health Research Laboratory, the Sex Lab as it's called, 
the director of sex therapy service in the Department of Psychology at Queen's University, which is a leading university in Ontario. Her research focuses on human sexuality with a particular focus on the assessment of vulvodynia, sexual difficulties, both male and female sexual arousal, and diverse relationships. In the sex therapy service, Carolyn trains student therapists on sex therapy techniques for clients who have sexual issues or gender issues. So this very busy and certainly very accomplished woman wears many hats, including being the mother of twins. <laughs> they are, I think, Carolyn, about eight or nine now. Is that correct? They're, they're almost yeah. seven. Oh, wow. <laughs> when I first met her many years ago, they were still toddlers, I think. <laughs> and you were navigating, uh, you know, preschool and, and daycare, I remember. Um, I want to say that this segment was pre-recorded earlier as Carolyn is away today with her family on holiday. So I really can't thank you enough. I know what a busy schedule you have right as you leave for, for a vacation. So thank you for taking this time to record with me. It is such a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. So I'd like to have you maybe get underway and explain the importance of your work. Because as I re- read that little piece, that little clip it from actually NIH's uh, site about how underdiagnosed and I want to call it pelvic floor pain, can be and is, and more specifically vulvodynia, which is, can be very difficult um, because it is kind of considered, or maybe it is considered, in the chronic pain uh, kind of categories. But uh, if you could explain your work and focus on, again, this, the sexual pain component to it and what makes it so challenging. Certainly. Um, so historically, so we do have to go back a little while to see how sexual pain was seen uh, many, many decades ago. Um, so ancient writings actually speak to women having uh, persistent pain during sexual activities uh, involving penetration. Um, yet it has only really been recognized and embraced as a chronic pain um, issue uh, recently. So serious research to look at what exactly is sexual pain and what is vulvodynia really has only started in the last decade or so. And before that, uh, sexual pain that couldn't easily be explained by any kind of medical conditions such as fissures, which are little tears that one can one can experience in the vulva area, uh, or an infection that can be documented with a medical test. Um, so any kind of persistent pain that led to discomfort during penetrative sexual activities that did not have any obvious uh, medical reason was seen as something that we call dyspareunia, which you mentioned in your introduction, uh, which is defined as painful intercourse or pain during intercourse. And what happened is that because there was no reason for the pain to be there, uh, people focused on sexual aspects um, of this, you know, woman's relationship. 
Um, was she sufficiently aroused? Was her partner's technique uh, sufficient in order to, you know, achieve penetration that was that was comfortable? Um, you know, what exactly was happening in that sexual situation? Did the woman love her partner? And so the pain aspect was actually ignored because it was dismissed um, simply because there was no reason for the pain to be there that one could see. Now, the chronic pain world is a very, very complicated one um, simply because chronic pain evades uh, a lot of the time um, objective assessment. You can't really see the pain, and a lot of the time in chronic pain issues, the pain is present, but the injury or the manifestation of an injury has long resolved. That is part of the definition of chronic pain. Um, and so it was left for many, many years uh, thinking that women who had pain during uh, penetrative activities, um, that it was some kind of sexual or psychosexual issue. Um, and people really did not um, delve after the pain. So when you have a person who's in pain in front of you, you'd like to ask, where is your pain located? How would you describe it? When does it occur? And it kind of takes you down a different path. Okay. Uh, I'm going to just in- inject very quickly. And I realize you're you know, referencing penetrative pain, um, but I, I, I want to just, you know, maybe at some moment you could address with vulvodynia, would pain occur um, without it being penetrative? And I'm going to reference oral sex, you know, during oral sex. Um, so is there any difference in, in those two sexual approaches? Certainly. So, um, you know, vulvodynia, as we know it today, is defined as chronic vulvar pain, um, you know, that is not easily medically identified, you know, or sort of rooted to some kind of condition. And the term vulvodynia is an umbrella term to describe different types of pain that can occur in a woman's vulva. Um, So this is the external genitalia um, of someone who is biologically female. Um, So there are different subtypes of vulvodynia. The most common one is provoked vestibulodynia. So this is pain in response to contact. This could be penetration. It can be uh, non-sexual contact as well, such as bicycle riding. Um, So the pressure on the vulva elicits that pain. There's also another common type of vulvodynia called generalized vulvodynia. And this is where the pain is experienced um, all the time, whether or not there is contact to the area um, or, you know, if there is nothing touching the area, the pain would still be present. Uh, So it's spontaneous pain, um, otherwise known as unprovoked pain. And these two types of pain can also occur together, unfortunately, where there is spontaneous pain, but then upon contact to particular areas of the vulva, there's actually a different kind of sharp pain that occurs only in response to contact. And so it really is a very uh, complex uh, symptom pattern that women with vulvodynia can present with. Most of the time, they will complain about um, their interference, the interference of the pain with their sexual lives. Uh, but when you probe deeper, um, just by talking to them, you realize that you know things such as sitting, uh, bicycle riding, uh, tampon insertion, or any kind of internal hygiene product that one could use, that those activities are likely um, 
likely uh, an issue as well for women who have various types of vulvodynia. So you had mentioned earlier that uh, historically it was looked at maybe more a psychological issue as opposed to a a physical manifestation. So uh, looking at that emotional piece for women, because it is so physically painful, but then as you, as I read earlier that they, under-report, they don't share with their physician, or it's maybe not given the attention. What do you think comes up emotionally that keeps them from sharing this information or seeking out uh, the help that they need? Well, you know, people, we, we, like as a researcher in this lab, I see vulvodynia as a biopsychosocial issue. So, we have many different um, parts of the system of that individual working together. Um, so there are biological correlates, even though we don't see them. And certainly the psychosocial fallout is quite impactful and usually in a negative way. Um, so, you know, a lot of individuals I spoke with, um, you know, when I was running studies and inviting women in who experienced discomfort or pain in terms of, um, um, you know, any kind of contact activities, uh, they would call and say, you know, I thought this was normal. I thought that having pain every time I was being sexually active with my partner, I thought that was normal. I didn't realize that it wasn't. So first of all, <laughs> there could be yeah. an idea out there that pain is supposed to be, uh, that sex is supposed to be painful, which is quite uh, misinformation um, and quite surprising to me. Um, well, I would imagine, uh, you know, if, if, if this has been a lifelong experience for you, um, to have this kind of experience, you, you end up uh, coming away with thinking, this is it, this is my natural, this is my norm. And it certainly doesn't really, and, and it's how tragic for so many women. It you know, really I, is. Like, I think a lot of women are told, like, your first, your first few intercourse, you know, acti- like, your fir- first few intercourse tries, your attempts will be painful. But I think some women leave, you know, thinking it's always going to be painful. And some people think, well, you know, if, if we're not actually talking about this, that consistent pain during, you know, penetrative activities or during sexual activity or in the vulva isn't something that one should live with. If we're not actually having those discussions, then we're really missing a point of education for women who may consider that this is how it is. Um, and it really no. shouldn't be. Sex should not no. be painful each and every time that you're engaging in it. No, I, and I think, you know, we, we, use, we do use the word sex education. And part of what I'm trying to do with the sexual voice is to help provide an idea of what is sexual health and to to you know to build on that and to look at what is health and sex is a part of our health and mm-hmm. and when you think of health you hopefully don't consider it to be a part of pain so um is there as we kind of come to the end of our session is there something you would like to leave the audience uh, you know to heighten their awareness to to have them know more about women's sexual pain? Well, first of all, um, you know, it's really important to note that, you know, this this shouldn't be the way it is forever. 
uh, that the pain is real. We have done research showing that, you know, even though we can't see anything objective in terms of, you know, inflammations or infections, that there is documented hypersensitivity in the vulvar area of women who have vulvodynia. It is real. Um, and it is real and it is treatable. And so, you know, it's important to find a healthcare practitioner that you're comfortable speaking with. A lot of women hold, you know, um, this information in because they have such shame talking about sexuality with their healthcare professionals. Um, and, you know, really just understanding that there is help out there and that, you know, they're not alone. Many women have this condition, um, and there's an actual, there's a website um, from the National Vulvodynia Association, it's nva.org, that can provide you with a lot of support and a lot of information and access to healthcare professionals in your area, and that can help you get that conversation started. Oh, well, thank you so much, Carolyn, and I really do appreciate uh all that you do, and I've heard you speak, as you know, at conferences and uh, especially the training that you provide in encouraging uh, people to explore this wonderful profession of sex therapy. So as we begin to um, break away at this point, I'm going to welcome back Dr. Stanley Allhoff in the next segment, and he'll be talking, continuing this conversation about where's the sex when things don't work. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to the Sexual Voice with Jessica Ford. To reach our show today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to the Sexual Voice at jafordgroup.com. Now, back to the Sexual Voice. Thanks for coming back with us. Uh, we're live as we continue today's discussion on Where's the Sex? when things don't work. We're looking at some of the more common physical issues as it relates to penetrative sex. Um, So we are so fortunate today to have Dr. Stanley Althoff, who's joining us from Florida. 
and he earned his PhD in clinical psychology from Oklahoma State University. He also shared with his partners a, the very distinguished uh, award of Masters and Johnson Lifetime Achievement. He is the executive director of the Center for Marital and Sexual Health in South Florida and has been in clinical practice and research for over 30 years, focusing on the psychosocial aspect of sexual dysfunction and the impact on men, women, and couples. He is the associate editor for the Journal of Sex Medicine, the Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy, and an associate editor of the Handbook of Clinical Sexuality for Mental Health Professionals, and also Male and Female Sexual Dysfunction. So welcome, Stan, and thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm honored to participate. Oh, thank you. And I have to say, I know that entire books are written on the topic that I have asked you to speak on today, and it's really a daunting uh, task I've given you, but I think you're up for it. So uh, not to waste any of the precious time as we, as we move through this hour, um, launching right in, what are the primary sexual difficulties men face? Well... Thank you for asking that. It is a large landscape, but we could divide it into problems of sexual desire, men's difficulty achieving or maintaining erection, and problems with ejaculation, either too quick, which we call premature, or too slow, which we call delayed. And unlike uh, what Dr. Pukal presented, men rarely complain. There are a few that do, but complaints of pain are not often presented to us. And what we get is uh, you need to, when you look at men's problems, whether it's desire, erection, or ejaculation, you need to take the lens of a biopsychosocial model. It's a big word, but what it means is to appreciate all the possible biological variables, such as illness, medications, and surgery. The psychological aspects include depression, anxiety, and certainly the relationship is very important. And to recognize how problems of desire, erection, or ejaculation impact the partner. And generally what happens is that the partner wonders, is she to blame for this problem? Does he not love me anymore? Have I gained some weight? Is he having an affair? And men are so embarrassed by having these problems that they begin to look at having sex as a chore, and they begin to avoid making love. They may go from once a week to once every two weeks to once a month, and finally, the couple is living like brother and sister. And oftentimes, even though we talk a lot these days about sex, there are commercials about erection on television, it may take a man anywhere between six months to three years to come see us. And by then, the problem has become much more entrenched. And even if this has a biological part, say the man is on a medication or has an illness, 
even though we know that probably began the problem, what then happens is he becomes very anxious about it, and his anxiety makes it even worse. So our job is really to do a comprehensive assessment of all of those things and with the man or the couple sit down and develop a stepwise treatment plan, an intervention for what may help them with the biological as well as the psychological or the interpersonal part. So well, I'll we certainly see a lot of this in, in the office. And uh, as you say, they come, um, many times they come, it takes six years <laughs> to get them to come. And uh, by then, the relationship, the intimacy in the relationship is really struggling. Um, and you're right, the, the, the wife often feels that she's to blame, that somehow she wasn't sexy enough or inviting enough. And, uh, but if you can go into more detail and explain maybe just a few of those dysfunctions that you talked about with um, the issues with maybe erectile dysfunction or even the rapid ejaculation or the delayed ejaculation. Okay, well, we'll, we'll take a couple of them. Let's, let's begin with the erection problems. What I do when the man comes to see me, I begin by asking, when did this start? So I have a, a point, and I then say, and before this, there were no difficulties. Then I ask him to tell me about the pattern of his erections, and I'll give him what I call a zero to ten scale, with zero being no erection, five being a midpoint, and 10 being stand-up, rock-hard, unbendable. And I'll ask him to tell me, so when you wake up in the morning or during the night, what number would you assign to the erection? I'd ask about when he tries to achieve an erection on his own or masturbation or the scenario of foreplay or when he attempts to have intercourse. And if you see in that pattern no variability, he says, well, I really get a poor erection under all circumstances. Call that a four or a five. That leads me to think there's more of a biological or medical problem. Because in the last month or so, he's telling me, I haven't had one good erection under any circumstances. On the other hand, if the man says, you know... Just the other night, I woke up and I really had a great erection. It was a 9 or 10. And by myself, I can get a pretty good erection. But when I'm with my partner, it goes down to a 4 or 5. Or when we try to have intercourse, initially it's good, but then it goes away. That tells me that there are probably psychological aspects that are interfering. Because he's just told me his potential is a 9 or a 10, which he had during the night. So we know that blood is getting to the penis. We know that hormonally he's okay. And probably neurologically he's okay. And therefore, what accounts for the variability is the psychological part. And then we'd go down that street and say, what was going on two years ago when this started? And it may be, you know, some trauma in his life, some problem in the relationship. And our focus then becomes, how can we help you sort of get past that point? How can we help you build 
sexual self-confidence. So this isn't a chair, a chore rather. This isn't something you're afraid of. And we talk to the wife about or the partner about what aspects, you know, she may contribute, if any, and uh, how we can get them to make lovemaking more fun, more erotic, more pleasurable, um, and decrease the anxiety for both partners. So I'm going to just inject is, you know, again, we have this, sometimes we fall into this heterosexual lens, but broadening in with orientations, um, do you see this differing um, between orientations? I don't. I, I treat both, I treat uh, many uh, gay men, I see fewer lesbians. And, of course, that's not relevant here. But for the gay men, the issues of the relationship uh, are very important or what produces anxiety for them are very important. And we treat whatever it is that's the point that causes them to get distracted. Um, The idea is the brain signals the penis when there's eroticism to fill with blood And when men get distracted by worry or thinking about their business or whatever it is they may think, they tend to lose their erection. So we try to help them stay on what I call the pleasure channel um, and focus on what they find uh, that feels good or is erotic. So basically the treatment, of course, the the orientation is different, but the treatment approach is exactly the same. Well, maybe uh, Voice America could consider the pleasure channel. We should consider that a proposal exactly. to them. But I, I'm I'm going to just you know I'm thinking of clients who I often encourage to stimulate that fantasy world and that erotic fantasy, and many of them will say, "No, it seems like I'm being unfaithful if I have that." pleasure channel going. So, you know, what comes up for you when I'm saying that to you, you know, in your sessions? Well, I try to explain to men what I just said, that it's really important that they focus on what feels good. And when they start to worry about the, you know, am I going to maintain the erection? Will she be mad at me? Here I go again. You know, all these negative thoughts um, that that gets in the way. So I tell them that they need to be a more selfish lover, at least, at least initially. And I know this sounds odd, but it is, I want you to focus on what brings you pleasure, because if you get and maintain your erection, you'll be pleasing your partner. And if you please your partner, she'll be more excited, you'll be more excited, and you have this upward cascade of pleasure and good sex. And that seems to make sense to them, where they recognize when they get over the distractions, then it becomes problematic for both of them. Sure. Can we look at the other piece of rapid ejaculation? Sure. And and I realize that delayed ejaculation can be a rather lengthy topic, but um, because there's a lot of variables, but the rapid ejaculation, I often think of it around someone with performance anxiety or um, right. dealing with those kind of issues. But well, I please. think we have to look at the two types of uh, 
premature ejaculation. There are men who've had lifelong premature ejaculation. That is, Jessica, since their very first sexual encounter, they've ejaculated quickly. And for our audience, we should define what rapid means, what we think of clinically as rapid, which is approximately one minute after penetration. And that many men who come to my office or call me will, you know, have uh, ejaculatory times, penetrative ejaculatory times, you know, up to 10 minutes and say, I ejaculate too quickly. And technically, um, they really wouldn't fit the diagnosis at all of premature ejaculation. It's something they feel they have. So there's the lifelong type, and then there's the acquired kind. The acquired kind is defined as men who've had normal ejaculation latencies and then suddenly develop rapid ejaculation. And when that happens, again, you need to think in terms of, is there something, a biological event like having developed prostatitis, which causes rapid ejaculation, Or did something happen in the man's life or their relationship where uh, that sort of gets things going? And then, of course, if that continues, there's anxiety about, oh, my gosh, I'm going to come, I'm going to come, I'm going to come, which often makes it worse. Mm -hmm. So um, these these can be very, both the erection problems and ejaculatory problems are very distressing for the men. And especially the ejaculation disorder, kind of a, impacts the partner slightly differently than the erection problem. The women become more angry because they feel the men are not, you know, um, doing anything to fix the problem. And it isn't that they feel, you know, the men may say, well, you're just too sexy for me, and that just further angers them. Moreover, because sex is so, at least penetrative sex is so, uh, it's quickly over with that it breaks the intimacy and that's very upsetting for the partner as well. So can you touch on the delayed ejaculation and then we'll come into some other questions. Okay. So delayed ejaculation is generally defined as men um, who are unable to ejaculate after a lengthy period of time, usually something like 20 or 25 minutes. And, you know, when men present, for some physicians or therapists who aren't terribly knowing, they'll say, with sort of give them a wink and say, well, that's terrific. I bet the girls love you, you know, or your partners love you. And um, that's not very helpful because, A, the, you know, it goes on and on and on, and it's not pleasurable anymore at 20 or 25 minutes for either the man or the partner. In fact, it could produce pain uh, for the woman, and um, the man doesn't know what to do to ejaculate. Again, we think of several possible theoretical uh, hypotheses, and there's much less research, Jessica, in delayed ejaculation than there is uh, yes. in premature ejaculation. Yes, I've, I've had uh, clients and, who have struggled with this and uh, to kind of unravel uh, what is going on for them. And, and in some ways, the the emotional impact that it has because it's so upsetting to the female, the, the partner. And right. uh, so, and I see this uh, again in heterosexual couples um, primarily, 
because one, uh, if they want to procreate, they can't, or, you know, if, if that's their goal, that becomes the struggle. So, it really does. It's such a problem then, you know, and then again, the distress goes up even another notch, right? Right. So, um, and, and like I said, this is a daunting task. You're doing a great job. Um, what are the emotional challenges? You know, do you have um, a client that, or a, a couple that you've worked with that, you know, that you could maybe uh, just spend a few moments talking about that, where you have worked on the issue of, of rapid ejaculation? Sure. Um, so uh, there's a couple that I see, and <clears throat> the man had the lifelong form of rapid ejaculation where he would ejaculate in 15 to 30 seconds after penetration. And this was very upsetting to uh, his wife because um, she couldn't, she used to achieve orgasm with other partners, but because he was so quick, she could never have an orgasm with penetrative sex. And it wasn't much fun to have intercourse for 15 to 30 seconds. So over time, her interest in lovemaking and her desire began to diminish. And he then was very aware, felt very badly about this, and had himself, before they came to see me, put on an antidepressant. And as you may know, uh, Jessica, Mm -hmm. the antidepressants are one possible treatment to delay ejaculation. It's really the side effect of the antidepressants. And in this case, it worked for him. But even though his rapid ejaculation got better, her desire... Um, got worse. It also got worse uh, because she had two children, and then she developed, um, she had some keloid after the episiotomy of the uh, surgery that she had, Um, and then um, that decreased her desire more. So I was now faced with a couple where actually he had gotten better and she had gotten worse. And our job is to help them, you know, make sex more pleasurable, more fun, create more intimacy and more passion in their relationship. And that's what we're working on at the moment. Well, it's, uh, we've, for those of us who are sex therapists, we've had those cases in the office, and, and it is a, a challenging road. So we're coming up on break right now, and uh, we'll be right back with uh, Dr. Stanley Althoff, and uh, we're talking about male sexual dysfunction. So please come back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. 
The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are listening to The Sexual Voice with Jessica Ford. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to the sexual voice at jafordgroup.com. Now, back to the sexual voice. Hello, we're back again with uh, Dr. Althoff Stan, as I think I'm going to call him, uh, discussing uh, male sexual dysfunction. So, you shared a lot of information and in kind of rapid fire. <laughs> I won't say <laughs> rapid ejaculation, but rapid fire. Sure. Um, so is there any little tidbits that uh, you want to just kind of wrap up that last uh, 20 minutes? Right. Well, the most important thing I'd like to get across to your audience is that there's a lot of hope. People come and feel you know, this is hopeless, I'll never get better, um, our sex life will always be bad. I, my sense is that what I want to leave your audience with is a sense of optimism and hope. There are many things we can do. We didn't really touch on the uh, medical things as much, but certainly both psychologically we have some sophisticated techniques. And today we live in the age of uh, the Viagra Levitra Cialis, which can also be helpful to men who need it. It can help restore confidence, restore erection, and so on. And with um, premature ejaculation, one of the things to think about is men who've had this problem all their life probably have a strong biological component. Um, and while we can help them with some of our psychological exercises and psychotherapy, there's probably a piece there that's not their fault uh, and that there are things that we can do. There are drugs in development that may be of help to them. So I want to keep the idea of keeping hope um, that things certainly, they may not be perfect, but they can probably be a whole lot better than they are when you come in the office. Okay. Well, thank you so much, and uh, I, I appreciate what you've shared, and I'm sure the, our listeners uh, do as well. The listenership continues to grow, and which is quite positive, and uh, also the great thing, even though we're doing this live, Stan, uh, people can uh, listen to us at another time when it's more convenient for them because it, it stays recorded in archives for I want to say almost forever, judging from what I've seen from their archives. So uh, your voice will will, uh, continue on and your message certainly will. So thanks so much for taking the time today and, uh, and being live with us. Well, thank you for asking me. I appreciate that and good luck with your show. Thank you. So, um... This topic, as I've kind of alluded to and, and maybe even said more specifically, 
is a very broad topic. And uh, Stan touched on these, and so did Carolyn, um, that there are many contributing factors that inhibit sexual activity. And I'm I'm just going to kind of condense, in a way, what we've been talking about for the last 40 minutes. We certainly, as we heard from Stan, there are the physical and organic issues like diabetes, heart disease, uh, cancer, uh, medications. There's the relationship difficulties. Emotional discord often leads to inhibited sexual activity. Stress is a big contributor to um, challenges sexually. Mental health issues, depression, anxiety, PTSD, the factors of PTSD and and what happens around sexuality there. Feelings of being inadequate or poor self-worth. All are contributing factors uh, to our sexual health. But when it comes down to a lot of it is uh, one of the things that I often see is uh, a communication in the relationship. Issues of trust and respect, feelings of attachment, uh, struggles come into play. People say, I feel unheard or disrespected. And when, I, when that happens uh, and there is an expectation for sex, I don't have much desire to do it. And it's hard to feel erotic intimacy when the emotional connection feels wounded. And I'm going to say this is not gender specific, so it's men and women both experience this. So my message here for you is, again, this is about finding your sexual voice, learning how to express it, and realize that over time that voice is going to change just as your sexual needs change. You need to stay connected with yourself to understand what your sexual needs are. Remember, sex is more than your genitals. If you're seeking intimacy and are willing to be open and do not feel emotionally safe, or if the only way you feel you can express your intimacy is through intercourse, consider putting some effort into exploring your needs further with yourself and with your partner. And over the next 10 weeks, several shows uh, that I've lined up are going to be looking at this topic further. Sex, Desire, and Intimacy Through the Life Cycle on September 2nd with Barry McCarthy. The Ebb and Flow of Sex and Desire, Is It Me or You? On the 23rd of September with Pepper Schwartz. I Was Robbed, Sexual Abuse and the Loss of Sexual Self with Wendy Maltz and Mike Liu on the 7th of October. And Where Is He? He's Not Into Me or In Me Anymore with Joe Court and Emily Nagowski on the 21st of October. So my takeaway for today is, uh, again, around this issue of guilt and shame that keeps us from talking. And uh, I'm encouraging all of you to risk, take that risk to be vulnerable with yourself. And in so doing, you're going to be able to have that connection with the partner that you, that you want once you can take that risk to be open with yourself and, as I said, with your partner. There was a case that uh, 
Carolyn had left with me about a 20-year-old woman in a heterosexual relationship for a year. And they wanted to get married. But she had something that was called primary vulvodynia, which was lifelong. And it had become so acute that every time he touched her, every time there was even a kiss, those sexual connections would trigger the pain. And it wasn't that those connections were causing the pain, but it was her psychological response to the pain that she felt or feared that she would be feeling. She avoided all forms of contact with her partner because she had come to believe that pain was a normal part of sex. And as she began therapy with Carolyn and her, the group um, at the University of Queens in, uh, in uh, Kingston at the sex lab, she wanted it to be different. She wanted it to change. And over the course of therapy, her partner learned just how much pain she had from the experience of being touched. And then, of course, he became guilty because he wanted to hold her, touch her, and it was even more than just having sex with her. So the work that was done was certainly physical therapy or uh, physical floor uh, therapy. There was work around her muscle tensions. As I said, it's the tonicity in, in the vaginal or the pelvic floor. There was psychotherapy. There was education around sexuality that helped her see that she was not a painful vulva, but that she was having vulva pain. Because also often people with chronic pain feel that they are the pain. So using stretching uh, applications with dilators, they learn to express their intimacy in other ways. And over two years, she went from, on a scale of one to 10, a pain scale, which she normally would have an eight, she was down to a two. So they learned a variety of techniques that helped her, as I said, over a two-year period, have normalized a healthier sexual experience. So we're coming up on the end of today's show. It went pretty fast today, as always, but uh, I'm always amazed at how quickly the show goes. Next week, we have Dr. Maiden John Barker. We're looking at orientations, rewriting what we think we know. And they're going to be joining us from London, England, not London, Ontario, or another London, but London, England. So she will be on the air. They will be on the air next week with us. It'll be 8.30 her time. Orientation, who we are romantically or sexually attracted to or not. The concepts of sexual orientation are now more inclusive than they've ever been before. There's pansexual, asexual, bisexual, transgender, and even kink and BDSM and pedophilia are now being considered orientations. 
Our orientation defines our relationships and our basic sexual identity. So next week, we're going to be expanding that lens a bit further, that lens of sex therapy, to look at how we engage in non-monogamous relationships. Dr. Barker's work uh, includes two very popular books, Rewriting the Rules, The Secrets of Enduring Love, How to Make Relationships Last, and her latest book is a comic book on queer, which will be out in September. We're also going to be taking some time next week to look back at the previous shows. And I have a very dear friend and colleague who's going to be joining me from Ontario. And Leah Vallon is a sex therapist in Ontario. And her she practices uh, and serves clients in Ayr, Stratford, and Kitchener, Waterloo. So she will be joining us. And then I'm going to say a client this week wondered how someone could ask a question or share something when they didn't listen live. And I guess there's a lot of folks out there that are not listening to the live show because of their work schedule or whatever. So they listen to the recorded. So, and I'm going to say, please email the sexual voice, all one word, the sexual voice at jafordgroup.com. And again, it's the sexual voice at jafordgroup.com. All emails are responded to. And it's also possible to pre record a discussion that can be aired on another episode or the next episode. So if you can't listen live and you have something that you want to share or talk about, please email me. So I'm going to leave you with another poem from Rumi. You know what happens when we touch. You laugh like the sun coming up at a star that disappears into it. Love opens my chest and thought returns to its confines. So remember Healthy sex begins with you. Please check us out and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And thank you for listening today. You can listen live or to the recordings anytime from anywhere. And please join next Friday and we'll talk some more. Thank you for joining Jessica and her guests today on The Sexual Voice. Please tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy your sexual self, and please join us here next Friday.